welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 21. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Gris and the Kingsbird, and I also had a chance to sit down with and chat to Z from Serenity Forge. In the news this week, Harry Potter, Wizards Unite, and Dota Underlords have been released, as well as news of Dr. Mario coming to mobile devices really soon. So it's a jam-packed show. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you are having a good week. I'm good this week. Uh, I've just got back to London, uh, having visited my family this weekend. And it was a really good few days away by the beach. And the weather is starting to look a little bit something like summer after last week's mega rain. In Game of Thrones board game news, I had a storming first few rounds and managed to grab five castles. Though now I'm dealing with attacks on three fronts. So it's unclear at the moment where I'm going to in my next round. Uh, I may just have to dig in and hold my position, but I'll keep you posted on how that game's going. Outside of gaming this week, I've been watching Chernobyl, and uh, if you haven't seen this series, I thoroughly recommend it. It's only five episodes. It's super intense, uh, but it has a really, really good cast. Uh, Here in the UK, you can find it on Sky Atlantic, and in the US and worldwide, I think you can find it on HBO. Uh, But it's one of the best things on TV in a long, long time, so do check it out if you can. The Cricket World Cup is also on at the moment, and England lost to Sri Lanka the other day. Uh, So England have been favourites going into the tournament. However, having lost to Pakistan and now Sri Lanka, it's unclear whether we're going to make the semi-finals. India had an amazing game yesterday where Afghanistan took them to the wire, with India getting a hat-trick of wickets to finish off Afghanistan later on in the game. It was really, really good. So it's a great game, and Afghanistan pushing one of the world's best teams to the wire. It was a shame that Afghanistan finally lost, but it was a great advert for the one-day format of cricket. So that's it for non-gaming stuff, now let's get into the gaming stuff. So this week, I've been playing a couple of beautiful platforming games on Nintendo Switch. There's two games I've had in my library for some time and wanted to spend some quality time with them. Uh, The first game is called Gris, which has stunning graphics, uh, slow, methodical gameplay, uh, mixed in with some puzzles, and it's a really, really emotional experience. The second is The Kingsbird, which is a challenging precision platformer much like Celeste or Super Meat Boy. I've also been playing through some more Destiny 2 this week and managed to get my hands on The Truth, an exotic rocket launcher originally introduced during D1. I've definitely been sucked back into the D2 grind and I'm enjoying every moment, I must say. Uh, I also picked up Harry Potter Wizards Unite and I had a few goes on that. It's kind of similar to Pokemon Go and you have to walk around and find various characters and items from the world of Harry Potter. It's free, so if you like Harry Potter, then go ahead and download it now for your mobile device. Just search up uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite in your app store on iOS and Android, and you'll be able to download it for free. I haven't played it enough yet to give it a review, but if you do like Pokemon Go, then you'll probably like this. Okay, so that's what I've been playing this week. So first up, let's get into my review of Gris.
So Gris is a beautiful game about fear, emotions, and overcoming grief and loss. The game is a watercolour painting come to life, and a game that energises the senses with fluid movement and a wonderful soundtrack. In the game, you play as a young woman named Gris. She's been through some trauma, and at the start of the game, she's so weak she can hardly walk. Desperately seeking something, Gris managed to find the strength to keep walking forward. And at the start of the game, Gris's fears, worries and pain take the form of a flock of birds looking to attack her. So Gris is weighed down by grief and loss, but as you progress through the game, you gather more abilities and strength, and you'll master your surroundings, becoming much more nimble and quick as you glide in the gorgeous, gorgeous levels. The art style of Gris immediately catches the eye. The game's like a watercolour painting come to life, and the animation is elegant, fluid, and a joy to take part in. There's a hand-painted and crafted look to the game that complements the game's story and draws you into Gris's world. At the start of the game, the world lacks colour, as to match the mood of the main character, weak, diluted and lost. Later in the game, the art style moves to bright colours with a flourish of movement, representing the growing strength of the main character as she rediscovers her form. The game pops and swirls with brushstrokes, colour and life, Sometimes you'll look down at the screen and just smile at what you're looking at. There was a moment when I walked onto a platform and suddenly I was inside this huge bug-like creature walking across a desert as the camera panned out to show the scale of the creature I just hopped onto. It's really, really great. The sound design is another part of the overall package of Gris that will impress you. The music and sound effects complement the emotional journey of Gris from the delicate music to the falling rain. Much like the watercolour art style, it literally paints a picture on your screen and the soundscape in Gris perfectly matches the situation, be that calming and exploratory to more upbeat and urgent when it needs to be. The story in Gris is relatively light on details and is highly visual. Gris, the main protagonist, has lost her voice due to an immense grief and is searching for something. Weak, broken and empty, Gris wanders the deserts, forest and underground caves talking to friends and enemies learning new skills along the way it feels like something straight out of art school where the story isn't laid out there in simple terms for the player but one where the player can figure out what it means to them gameplay evolves over time gris is a platforming game with fairly simple puzzles as obstacles and over time new skills will become apparent allowing you to interact with the environment in new ways or battle the ever-changing elements in the game, such as the wind and the rain. There's a satisfying sense of momentum to the game, found in other recent platformers like Celeste or A Kingsbird, where the environment support and propel you in the right direction. Gris is full of metaphors, from the flock of birds that attack for fear, red wind for anger, and blue water for depression. It's nice to see games tackling these issues and guiding players through worlds that maybe aren't perfect, where the protagonist has clearly been through some huge personal tragedy, desperately trying to rebuild themselves. Due to the silent nature of the main character, sometimes it does feel a little bit tricky to feel an emotional connection to her. The game itself isn't too challenging, with a mixture of platforming, puzzles, and utilising player abilities and learned skills. The player won't spend more than a few minutes with the puzzles, as the designs feel intuitive and welcoming. Each new level comes with a new ability for the main character, which changes her look through the cloak. For example, turning into a heavy block to stop you getting blown back by the strong winds, or the ability to smash through floors. 
Once you complete levels, you return to a central hub world where your new abilities are collected in the form of a constellation of stars, and it's definitely satisfying to add to this collection. Gris isn't long and could be played in the afternoon or on a train ride or a plane ride. However, there are parts of the game that can feel a little bit frustrating. Sometimes the background and the foregrounds merge, making it a little bit confusing as to where to go or how to get there. The game sometimes can feel a little bit oversimplified in its puzzle design, meaning it's a complete breeze to run through. However, these are minor gripes in an otherwise unique and satisfying game. Gris is an experience that should not be missed. It's uniquely beautiful with a combination of art, sound and movement that all adds up to a really satisfying experience. I played the game on Nintendo Switch, but it's also available for PC and Mac. It was developed by Nomada Studios and was originally released on the 13th of December 2018. And overall, we gave the game a 79 out of 100. So, have you played Gris? Let me know what you think of it on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com let me know how you got on. What did you think of the puzzles? What did you think of the art style? And uh, yeah, let me know what you thought of it. Next up, I've been playing another platformer this week. And uh, let's take a look at my review of The King's Bird. So the King's Bird is a challenging platformer with momentum at its core. Serenity Forge is throwing their hat into the ring for the precision platforming genre and the result is an entertaining, albeit tough, experience. The game is light on story elements, preferring to tell the story through beautiful artwork and an excellent soundtrack. Early in the game we witness an argument between the King and uh, his supposed daughter. Rather than convey the story with in-game speech, the characters sing to one another in a beautiful yet expressive song. There are other story clues in the game found within the murals located throughout the world. The King's Bird is a platformer that wants to capture the rush of flying through the sky. It's your job to maintain momentum forward to get over the many obstacles in the level. Levels are full of platforms, pillars and slopes to either get in your way or propel you forward. You can wall jump and glide, Otherwise, it's all about building up your forward momentum to have enough flight to get you across huge open spaces. Once you've built up enough energy to fly, a white tail billows from the main character, underlining the sense of speed and momentum. And movement in the early part of the game is a sheer joy. So our main character can dash and glide, slide down hills and bounce up walls. Building up momentum and gliding feels fantastic and is definitely one of the high points of The King's Bird. In the early stages of The King's Bird, you feel free and movement is easy. Scaling the highest heights and jumping off to soar through the levels almost makes your stomach turn. Once you've made your way through the early levels though, the game's difficulty ramps up to a point where it can become really, really challenging. The subtle moves of the main protagonist are where the challenge and ultimately a little frustration lies. Gliding through the air is one thing, but the wall jumping mechanic can be somewhat tricky to master. 
Jumping into a wall gives you a boost of momentum upwards and chaining these moves together offers a significant challenge. The King's Bird has four kingdoms, Forest, Lake, Sky and Fallen, with each kingdom has a hub area with access to doors that lead through to more levels. Being the levels unlocks a new door with an access to a shrine. Each level in objective is fairly straightforward. Reach the end goal and open up doors to make your way through the worlds. And the worlds vary slightly and offer up different combinations of glide, dash and jump obstacles for players to overcome. In an interesting twist, there's no real enemies to speak of in the game. The main enemy is the environment, from the poison ivy, the water hazards, the thorns and the pits. As you make your way through a series of obstacles, you'll find lampposts, which act as your checkpoints. There are collectibles throughout the world as well, called spirit birds, and these birds follow you around when you touch them, and they look very nice indeed. However, the extra trouble of getting these weighed against the benefits of having them doesn't always add up. The early levels of the game seem somewhat welcoming, however later parts of the game is where the real challenge lies. It's a super precise platforming game, and the margin for error is really small. One false move and you're dead, starting back at the last checkpoint. And if you like this kind of trial and error platformer, then you'll likely love this game, as it's definitely made with high skilled players in mind. Speedrunners will also get a lot out of the game, as the King's Bird likes to reflect your level time back at you, nudging you towards improving your times and getting better. If you're really banging your head against the wall, then there's assist mode, which will help you a little get through the levels. Gliding can be extended, invincibility against thorns, and skip even to the next checkpoint will be available. This offers up players light relief in a tough game that requires high skill, precision and patience. If you find yourself nearly throwing your switch down, or your controller, then give assist mode a go. So in summary, the Kingsbird is a challenge. The game looks and sounds great, and the minimalist graphics combined with the soaring audio is a joy, and the early stages of jumping, flying and gliding through the sky feels great. The name of the game here is repetition, training and learning to beat the challenge that's laid in front of you. If you're a fan of the genre, then this game is likely to whet that appetite. But if you're new to this genre, it may seem a little bit unforgiving at first, but stick with it and give Assist Mode a go if you get really stuck. So the game was developed by Serenity Forge. Uh, it's available for Nintendo Switch and PC and was originally launched on the 23rd of August 2018. And I gave the game a final score of 78 out of 100. So if you played Kingsbird, let me know what you think of it on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. How did you get on with the difficulty? Uh, do you like this kind of game? And uh, yeah, if, you do, if you've been speedrunning this game, send me a times, let me know how you've been getting on. I'd love to hear from you. So that's it for my Kingsbird review and a really, really super fun game there. And to follow that up, I was lucky enough this week to sit down with Z, the executive producer at Serenity Forge, and let's go over to that interview. Okay, so welcome back to This Week in Video Games and welcome to Z um, from Serenity Forge. Welcome, Z. Hey, how glad to be here. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I understand you've just got back from E3, so how was it for you? It was all right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, E3 uh, has changed a lot in the past couple of years, uh, and uh, from a developer side, it definitely became more and more difficult, uh, mainly because a lot of companies are starting to pull out. Uh, but ultimately, it was a fantastic week for me. Uh, we had a great number of business meetings. Uh, I think this year we only spent, I, I know I only spent maybe an hour on the show floor. <laughs> it's just mostly stuck in meeting rooms and hotels and all that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great trip. 
it's it's interesting over the last few years it feels like a lot of companies are kind of doing their own kind of thing i know nintendo kind of started off um doing their nintendo directs a few years ago and now uh, sony have started doing their kind of video showcases so how has that affected e3 do you think yeah, so 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 I think anyone who is a part of the industry or like at least physically goes to E3 every year would very easily notice that the the quality of the show um, has changed. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it has gotten worse, but but it definitely changed in its focus. Historically, E3 has always been a show where uh, media gets to meet with developers. So that way, uh, you know, as a game developer or publisher, you're able to uh, make press releases at E3, really show off the cool stuff that you have. This is like an exclusive event that unless if you're an important journalist, no one's allowed in. And that makes it very lucrative for journalists to go, makes it very lucrative for developers and publishers to uh, invest a ton of money in, uh, to kind of essentially do, to do like a little virtual wine, wine and dine type of deal where, you know, you're giving away free uh, press uh, swag uh, that, you know, shirts or sometimes even crazier back then. Um, but now that they opened the entire show to consumers, um, that... You, you can see how as a as a publisher, the kind of spending that you have no longer goes into the press. Uh, and that becomes a, a little bit tough for some of these publishers. Like, you know, to give an example, if you're going to give away, uh, you know, some some nice stuff uh, at a booth, uh, like a pin or, or a T-shirt, if you give it to someone who has, you know, 20,000 followers on Twitter versus uh, a consumer who is just there to play the game or potentially buy it, maybe not, um, it's just not worth that money anymore. So over time, uh, game publishers started pulling out because it's it's no longer the same show that they used to invest in. And once they pull out, the journalists also start getting mistreated because they're kind of used to this E3 format, and now they don't get that anymore. Uh, they're and their jobs are on the line. You know, like journalists are having trouble covering the event, uh, and they don't they don't they don't uh, have the right time or the privilege to be able to cover that event. Therefore, they might not be able to put the number of articles that they have to put out there. And then now everybody is hurting: the publishers, developers, the journalists. I mean, it's it's a fantastic thing for the fans, uh, absolutely. Uh, but ultimately, it's uh, for the game industry. There's a quite a lot of strain. And um, I understand you've got um, a few exciting kind of projects in development at the minute. Did you get a chance to talk to people about that? Did uh, um, show uh, Half Past Fate at E3 this year, and that worked out pretty well. I believe Pace Magazine and PC Gamer both said that the game is uh, one of the best games they saw at E3 this year, uh, which is uh, quite an honor uh, from a small team like ours. So could you tell us a little bit more about uh, Half Past Fate and the, the type of game that it is and, and the story? Yeah, Half Past Fate is a romantic comedy narrative game. Uh, it's very similar to if you take a film like Love Actually or Groundhog's Day and you mash it together with a game like To the Moon. Uh, and that's kind of this RPG uh, rom-com that you have going. Um, really, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to dive into too much of the details because mostly it's just a lot of narrative. Um, and and it's, it's not like an epic story where there's a hero that saves the world or anything. It's just a really cutesy story about uh, six different people and uh, their relationships with each other, their relationships with the world and all the people around them. Um, and ultimately, uh, uh, you, you see how like everyone in this world is connected in different ways. 
Oh, that's awesome. And, and you mentioned the, the focus on, on the narrative there. Is that something that um, Serenity Forge does quite a lot, narrative games? Yeah, we, we primarily focus on narrative games. Uh, you know, honestly, we, we focus more on just games that are meaningful and value-driven in general. Um, narrative is a great way to deliver that value. Uh, so, so for us, we definitely care a lot about narrative. And uh, you know, the uh, Once Upon a Coma and Half Past Fate are both narrative titles. We have worked on narrative titles in the past, like Where the Water Hits Like Wine. Uh, and then uh, we have a couple other games that are very narrative focused going forward as well. And you, you touched on um, Once Upon a Coma there, and uh, I, I, I got my hands on the uh, demo that, that's out there at the moment, and uh, it, it's, it's a fantastic uh, feeling game. Uh, it, it's very fluid, uh, it, it's very fast, and I, I actually became aware of your work um, uh, through A King's Bird, and uh, it, it's another game where the, where the kind of fluid, uh, the movement is very, very fluid and it feels um, fantastic. Is that something you like to focus on in your, in your games? Yeah, it's, I guess one of the things that we spend too much time doing is, uh, is engines to kind of make the game feel good. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the King's Bird there. Uh, the King's Bird is, is very much focused on that. Our uh, creative director behind the King's Bird, Dian, he spent maybe about two years uh, to perfect the game's physics and just the fluid mechanics. Um, if, you, if you see the game or play the game, you can see that there is this white... Um, uh, fluid simulation that's on the screen essentially, this white graphic uh, effect, um, that is all just uh, four-dimensional calculus that Dian, uh, you know, programmed into the game to, to make it feel really good. And that's not even accounting for just the, the actual physics of the game, too. So, so that, that's definitely something that we care a lot about. Um, we believe that uh, when you're telling a story, it doesn't necessarily only come from the words that appear on the screen, but more so the environments, how you feel, uh, you know, how do you move in the game, and uh, setting and characters and all that. Oh, I was really impressed with um, with King's Bird uh, and uh, and Once Upon a Coma as well. It feels absolutely fantastic, and you can really you can you can feel um, the fact that someone spent two years kind of looking looking at the physics of that game. Um, what was your inspiration behind uh, Once Upon a Coma? Yeah, honestly, uh, so, so about Once Upon a Coma, uh, you played the demo, so you kind of know the themes that we're addressing. The, the game is about uh, a boy named Pete who wakes up from a coma to find that all of the parents went missing. So essentially, as a player, you have to go figure out what's going on. Um, the game heavily addresses a lot of topics that are a little bit darker uh, in our society, um, like depression, uh, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. And ultimately, we want to create an, an adventure where people are able to um, kind of talk about it a little bit, open up the discussion. Um, it's one of those games that if you're a kid and you play through it, uh, it seems like a pretty fun adventure. Maybe you learn something. Um, but as an adult, you can definitely read a lot more into it. Uh, this ultimately came out of the fact that as developers, um, we we suffer a lot through uh, different ups and downs in our lives. Uh, you know, there's a there's a very strong reason for why creatives are so talented at what they do, and generally, you know, some of these reasons aren't necessarily the best. Uh, therefore, uh, we wanted to have a lot of self-expression uh, with the game to make sure that we're able to tell a story from the bottom of our heart, not at all as a tool of any kind to help people, but more so to kind of open up a conversation and tell people about what happened and, and also kind of uh, see how the, the um, players are able to gain something out of it too. 
That's awesome. And yeah, I, I totally recommend uh, everyone uh, listening. If uh, if you haven't seen the kind of the, the, the demo of uh, Once Upon a Coma, go out there and get it. So how, how can players get their hand on that demo? Yeah, so right now you can you can find the demo uh, exclusively on GameJolt. So GameJolt.com, uh, you can find Once Upon a Coma there. The game is actually coming out pretty soon as well. Pretty soon being like a few more months. Uh, so there's uh, there's always that, and that'll be the full game, not just a, a short demo. That's awesome. Yeah, I I got to the end of the demo, and I was like, no, that's uh, I I just wanted to kind of keep playing, but it was the uh, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, but I to tide myself over, I've gone back to a king's bird. So. <laughs> Um, and we we touched on half past uh, fate um, briefly there uh, before. Um, when can players get their hands on that game? Yeah, it's uh, both of these games are actually coming out around the same time this year. We're looking at Q three, maybe early Q four this year. Um, the yeah, so and half past fate uh, for for both games, we are uh, we have a PC and console planned. And um, it, it, you mentioned before about um, value-driven games, and that's, that seems to be uh, a theme um, kind of running, running through your games. I, I know I kind of went back through your back catalogue, and I came across uh, Luna's Wandering Stars, uh, where that was a, a puzzle game um, where you were kind of teaching people about physics. Um, could you tell us more about the kind of the, the value-driven games philosophy with Serenity Forge? Yeah, so so I guess the easiest way to describe it is that uh, games are very dominant in in our society. You know, a, a, if you look at a kid, they're way more likely to want to play a video game than to read a textbook or you know learn <laughs> anything. Um, so so ultimately, uh, it's 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 almost like um, you know the the things that you learn in games is uh, comprises of a, a ton of what we learn today yeah, in our daily lives. I mean, a lot of people say that what uh, you know uh, the the amount of information that we receive every day nowadays uh, is comparable to the amount of information that you receive back in the dark ages uh, in, in like ten years during that time. So so w which is kind of nuts. Like that's how much information that we're constantly learning and constantly pushing our boundaries. Um, However, most of that information comes from the media that we uh, consume. It's not like we're reading you know, textbooks about physics and math and just exploring the frontiers of uh, you know, scientific society. Um, it's that we are receiving information through browsing Reddit or you know, going to Twitter or you know, watching a TV show or movie or playing a game. So ultimately, the way I see it is, uh, as a game developer, because of how much power you have um, on shaping society, you have an inherent duty. Uh, to make sure that the shape that you're creating is is the is the one that the world uh, uh, should be in. Um, what uh, to give an example, one of the ways that we embark on a new project when we talk about it internally is we uh, do the scenario test where imagine if this game came out and this game is now the next big thing. Everyone in the world is now playing this game overnight, and um, and everyone loves it. What kind of effect do we have on society when that happens? Uh, is it an effect that we want to see? Is it a positive thing? Is it, is it something that's actually going to benefit the gamers? Um, and if the answer is no, then it's probably not a project that we want to be a part of. Uh, so that's, I, I guess that's kind of like a simple way to, to look at what we mean when we say meaningful and value-driven games. Uh, that's really cool. It's, it's really interesting because I think both EA and Epic were in London this week 
being questioned by um, by a, a panel from our government uh, talking about loot boxes and and the addictive uh, nature of games. So it's it's really. And I, th I think it's very easy for games to be kind of put into a box where people say, oh, you know, they're just that's just a pastime where young kids kind of shoot things and they're learning the, these, these violent um, behaviours and, and things like that. But it's, it's not actually true. There are, there are many video games that have a, a real um, positive contribution to society. Um, I, I know, for, for example, in, in the recent Assassin's Creed games, you can kind of wander around ancient Greece and you can learn um, about history and you know various things like that um, but do you think um, video games can contribute uh, to society other than the you know the, the entertainment medium that we're, we're kind of presented with then oh yeah absolutely I mean video games essentially already do in a lot of ways um, there's a lot of things that we do in our daily lives nowadays that aren't you know, they kind of originated from video games. I think video games, uh, like essentially all of UI <laughs> came from video games. Like just uh, user interface, user experience design. Uh, a lot of these things kind of came from the, the original founding fathers of, of games that, that uh, motivated people to, to push those boundaries. Because um, ultimately, if you think about it, um, video games rely purely on UI UX. There's no such thing as, as, uh, as true value. Uh, compared to something like if you're using uh, a camera app for you to to take a photo of something, you know, like that's there's there's a utility uh, that 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 app serves. Whereas a video game, ultimately, really never serves a a, a tangible utility. Um, so with that said, uh, on top of that, there's also a lot of different things that kind of shape our society in different ways. Um, like for example. Uh, you know, video games that are designed to uh, be educational. I think that's probably one of the most uh, earliest examples, educational games, although they do have a pretty negative rep because of them not being all that fun a lot of times. Uh, you know, once you remove the fun from the core value of a game uh, and put education there, uh, sometimes it kind of turns more into just an interactive textbook rather than a, a game. And that, that doesn't do a lot of people a lot of good either. Despite the fact that I personally would argue that it actually works really well. Um, and then there are tons of other not so tangible effects. Uh, like earlier you mentioned loot boxes uh, and being a bad thing. And, and yeah, like I would, I would probably generally agree that there are, there are some stuff that needs to be changed in loot boxes. Especially when it comes to younger uh, demographics. Um, however, at the same time you can also say that loot boxes are actually a w much better version of gambling. Uh, so here's an example. Uh, earlier this year, I was at CES, which takes place in Las Vegas, um, and uh, I was uh, one of my colleagues uh, had to go to the restroom, so I went ahead and just kind of sat in a casino waiting for him. And I was I watched this guy that came over, and uh, and started playing on a slot machine. And he put in a fifty dollar bill and started playing slots. And about ten minutes later, his money's all gone. And then he's like, okay, cool, I had my fun, and he just left. That's fifty dollars. That's like an entire video game uh, worth of money. And I thought to myself, like, wow, like people are still spending money like that. You know, I'm I'm thinking back at the games that I'm playing that has loot boxes or has you know some kind of a gotcha system or a, you know a slot system. And I thought to myself, you know, I would much rather spend the fifty dollars in one of my games that I'm playing rather than on that slot machine because at least I'm getting something out of it, even if it's 
fake, even if it's you know like a like a digital piece of equipment. At least uh, I got I, I got like some kind of self uh, satisfaction on that. Whereas this guy literally just threw his money away, and he's never gonna see that again. And he got he probably never was designed to get anything out of it anyway. So so that to me, I feel like yeah, if you compare these loot boxes to modern gaming, yeah, it might be a little bit ethically gray. But if you compare it to, you know, your traditional uh, casino gaming, it's it's a way better system already as is. So so I think there's a lot of different like ways you can look at the, the, the game industry. And my perspective is generally very positive on a lot of different choices. And, and the games industry has is, is changed so much. Um, we're, we're, I mean, I guess now, the, you know, one of the, one of the business models is kind of free to play, and then um, you kind of you know, buy kind of um, uh, either season passes or microtransaction or um, things like that. Um, mobile games have, have come to the forefront, and uh, um, streaming and uh, Twitch streaming, and now we've got um, streaming video games um, with Google Stadia coming up soon and Microsoft. Uh, Project X Cloud. What do you see as the as the sort of biggest change in the in the video games industry over the last say ten years? Oh, well, ten years is pretty long. I'm, try, I'm trying to think here. Um, I think for the past ten years specifically, um, it's the rise of indie games. Um, definitely. Um, you know, ten years ago, if we're looking at twenty. 2009, I think, um, you are at the very early onset of the indie explosion where you have your Super Meat Boy, you have your um, Braid, uh, you know, and then some of the earlier like Xbox Live games up there. Uh, Steam is barely a thing at this point. Uh, I think it's a couple years in now and Steam used to really just be a distributing platform for Valve games and eventually they added some other games like uh, Red Orchestra, I believe, is one of the first third-party games that they added onto Steam. Uh, and then eventually, you know, some of these uh, humble bundles started uh, coming up as well. You have games like and yet it moves. Uh, you have games like um, Word of Goo. You know, these like really early stage indie games that kind of exploded. Um, and and honestly, as soon as that happened, people it gave people the thought that hey, you know, like I can make games too. Uh, and since then, indie games never went away. I think for the longest time, like indies are just like, oh, I can make games and I want to start my own company and I want to be the next EA, which is neat. You know, EA and Activision were both indie games, <laughs> indie game companies at one point. Um, but then a lot of these people started facing uh, the reality that maybe uh, in order to get to EA, you actually have to be a really good business person, not just to make games. So, so then the indie game industry, I think, shifted uh, more towards where it is today where uh, there's like, you know, your AAA people and then you have your double A's as well, like your 505 games, uh, you know, like, uh, and, and, then, and then you go more down to your uh, triple I games, I, I would like to call it, like, you know, games like Celeste, uh, you know, these are, these are more like triple I games where they're not necessarily just a one guy in a basement anymore, uh, but they're still, very, they're very high production, but they're still, they still have that indie spirit very much so, uh, still with a small, smaller team compared to games like Dragon Age. Uh, and then lastly, you have your students who are still in high school that are constantly making their own games. Uh, a lot of times making games for purely intrinsic values, not even to release it, just making games for fun. Like, uh, <laughs> here's an example. A really good friend of mine, his name is uh, Stephen Harmon, who by the age of 15, he has already 30-something games released on Game Jolt. Um, and, uh, and recently he, uh, so right now he is currently uh, doing his master's degree uh, in uh, computer uh, or game design in uh, USC. And recently he made a game 
about uh, how you play as Ant-Man that flies up uh, Thanos' asshole. <laughs> that's like liter- literally the game. You know, a game like that is not made to make money, but it, but it generates this completely new form of art. So, so yeah, I mean, that, I would say for the past 10 years, that's probably the biggest change in the game industry. That's, that's really cool. It's, uh, I, love, I love indie games because the, 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 the amount of creativity that's in the industry, like, like you say, uh, with the Ant-Man example there, um, and, and, the, the, and a game I, I played fairly recently was Papers, Please, uh-huh, uh, yep. which, is, which is absolutely wonderful and, and charming. And um, is, is there anything out there in the, in the wider industry that inspires you at the moment, is, be it kind of um, other games or upcoming trends or other developers? What, 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 kind of, what, what do you look out there at the wider landscape and go, wow, you know, that, that's really, that's amazing? Yeah, in the recent months, there are two main things that really inspire me, which is going to sound super out of the left field. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about them. Number one, uh, I've been replaying, or not replaying, actually I'm playing for the first time Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, and this game is super inspirational to me because I realized just how timeless this game's design is. If you go back and play Final Fantasy VII, which is one of my favorite JRPGs, it doesn't age well. You know, the, the, uh, the art is meh. You know, you, you play it purely for nostalgia purposes. For anyone to pick up the game now, obviously it's not going to hold. Um, however, if you play Final Fantasy VI, uh, you know, with the pixel art, it becomes timeless. Um, with the game design, it's, it's just so easy and, under, uh, you know, simple to understand. And then lastly, also just the, the structure of narrative. Um, it's so rare. I, I've, I don't think I've really seen anything that's comparable to the kind of story that, that Final Fantasy VI uh, was able to tell, uh, especially with, with such a small budget and d- development team uh, compared to uh, the dev teams that are here nowadays. I mean, if you look back to those uh, NES or SNES games, those development teams are very much the equivalent size of our indie teams nowadays. So it makes a lot of sense for indies to be inspired by those games. So th- that's that's one of the inspirations that, that I've been uh, kind of following a lot. Uh, and then a second inspiration for the game industry for me is uh, about a year ago, I finally watched Frozen for the first time, the, the film. Uh, and after watching it, I realized that the Frozen is extremely magical, not for the, the plot. I mean, yeah, sure, for the plot as well, for, for, for people. Um, but mostly for me, uh, I was amazed at the fact that we had grandparents and little kids below the age of 10 and everywhere in between. You know, people like me who are hardcore movie watching and, you know, gamer uh, people like, uh, you know, little kids and, and, and my parents. And like all of these people can sit together and watch Frozen from beginning to end and everyone got something out of it. That is crazy to me because <laughs> I have never seen that in a video game. I don't think there is a single video game out there in our world right now where anyone in the world can get something out of. You know, you can say that, oh, the most popular game in the world is League of Legends or Fortnite. Um, but not everyone likes that stuff. And in fact, you know, I, would, I, I, can, I can name you a ton of people who hate that stuff. Um, but then you, you also look at the casual market, maybe like, oh, look at Candy Crush or look at Tetris. Not, people just don't get that kind, of, uh, that kind of utility out of games like Tetris and, and Candy Crush. Not like the emotional, emotional engagement like Frozen can, can give to a viewer. So, so to me now, it's like, where do we have to go as an industry? Like it shows that we're so immature still, so such an infant stage, that we still we still haven't cracked that yet. Like there's so much more for us to do as a game developer, um, that that there's you know the sky's the limit. That's awesome. So we we need to 
find the frozen of video games. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we've we've talked a little bit about some of the games um, you've you've got coming up and uh, coming out in 2019. We've talked a little bit about your inspiration. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, Serenity Forge and your your kind of uh, ethos as a company and, and your your objective as a, as a company. Yeah. So so uh, Serenity Forge, we are a pretty small team. We're currently 14 people here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, we primarily focus on PC and console games, as uh, as it should be apparent. Um, however, we are also dabbling a little bit into mobile to see kind of how we can inject a little bit of our culture into the mobile space too. I mean, we're definitely not going after the the typical mobile route uh, for you know how you typically would think of a mobile game. Uh, the way that we approach it is definitely a lot more focused on like premium games, um, games that transfer well onto mobile. Uh, that said, uh, as a company, we focus on creating meaningful and value-driven uh, artistic experiences that change the way that you think, uh, either about uh, our world, our society, people, or even yourself in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, the games that we do uh, generally tries to push the envelope a little bit uh, with everything that we do. Um, we still are very much focused on consumer-facing products. So, you know, we, we make games that... Uh, aren't like you know being sold into schools or although like some schools do like to buy our stuff but like it's that's not our goal our goal is still to release our games on pc and consoles and have people play it and just to make sure that when they do uh after they're done playing the game they are expanding their horizons and they can walk away uh being a slightly different person than they were before um i like to reference uh, Gone Home a lot because that's one of my favorite games of all time and I bring up this game in like a third of my conversations in life um, but, but Gone Home is one of those games that you know it's not a very long game it's like three or four hours total but after I played it I would never stop talking about it and it has made such a huge impact to my life and these are the type of games that I uh, you know we, we like to focus on too. And how how do you and your team um, go about coming up with ideas for games and or, or selecting the projects that you work on? What, what's your kind of uh, process as a team? Yeah, we are actually an extremely I, I would say extremely Darwinian process in how we approach uh, idea generation. So generally, whenever we uh, whenever we have ideas, by we I mean like literally individuals inside our team ha has an idea. Um, they would pitch it to the company, pitch it to the whole team. And if the rest of the team is excited for the game, then we'll just go work on it. It's like literally, like imagine if someone comes to you with an idea. And once you hear it, you can't stop yourself from working on that game because it's so exciting. Uh, those are the games that we generally uh, take on as, as a team. Um, it's, it's, it, it always has to do a lot with just like influencing our team's uh, culture to make sure that uh, we're very accepting of all sorts of different ideas. And then ultimately, we pursue ideas that are obviously, well, they have to make a certain level of business sense uh, so that we can still keep the, keep the company running. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we like to push the envelope when it comes to artistic uh, direction as much as possible. That's awesome. And uh, we, with, with Once Upon a Coma and Hubbus Fate uh, coming out later on in the year, I mean, um, what else have you got coming up in 2019? Yeah, unfortunately, um, there's one thing that's pretty big that we can't really talk about yet. Um, 
So <laughs> I guess that's that. Uh, so we are currently porting one of our existing titles onto consoles uh, that came out only for PC currently. Um, so that's uh, that's exciting news. Um, besides the two other games, uh, and uh, we do have a couple other things that we're working on internally um, that are just way too early, uh, and we're probably not going to be making any, making any announcements anytime soon. Most likely, maybe like mid twenty twenty. Awesome. So watch this space from Serenity Forge there. Lots hmm. of secret projects in the works, and oh, that, that sounds really good. Um, so I, I mentioned it before with uh, Kingsbird, and I came across your work uh, first with that game on Nintendo Switch, and it, it feels like Nintendo Switch is a, is a really great platform for indie games. Uh, it's got a really nice storefront, um, and obviously you can play kind of games on the go. Um, how has the release of the Nintendo Switch kind of uh, impacted uh, the work that you do at Serenity Forge? The Switch is an amazing platform. Um, it is by far the heaviest investment platform that we have right now. I mean, obviously, all of our games are on the PC, but uh, Switch is uh, Switch is where I, I think a lot of um, the industry is at right now. Uh, with that said. Um, I'm not going to discredit the uh, you know Xbox and Sony either, uh, especially Xbox. Uh, the Xbox team is uh, just a fantastic group of people to work with. Uh, we love working with them, um, despite the fact that we don't have a lot of uh, stuff currently out. Uh, you know, as we speak, that is on the Xbox. You know, that's not to say that we don't have some good uh, relations with them uh, going to the future. Um, so, to put it in a little bit of perspective, uh, the 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 switch. Um, currently uh, is matching, uh, if not uh, doubling, the amount of PC sales that we generally see uh, in our games. Uh, so, and that's you know, it's a game console versus a, a, a thing that's in everyone's household. So that that's just how popular games are doing uh, on Switch, especially uh, since the Switch is the only mobile platform that's currently out in the world. Um, you know, besides a phone. Uh, so if you want to play any kind of console games on the go. Uh, the Switch is the only place to do it. Um, therefore, a lot of times it becomes the definitive place to play a lot of indie games. Uh, games like Stardew Valley, uh, you know, it, it's just perfect on the Switch. Undertale, perfect on the Switch. Uh, so so it's, it, it's like, you know, you can either play on a big screen or stuck there for either consoles or, or, or PC, or you can now play it on the go on a plane in your bed, on the toilet, you know, whatever it may be, uh, on the Switch. So, so because of that, it becomes a. It's just. It's just a no-brainer for us to have to support with the switch. That's awesome, and uh, it's a really interesting time as well. We touched on it briefly with with Google Stadia and Microsoft Project X Cloud, and with Nintendo Switch kind of being, uh, I guess, the, the the game console that you can take on uh, the metro or the, or the train or the bus or the plane. Um, I guess in in the not too distant future, we're going to be able to. Uh, stream our video games to tablets and phones and TVs and all, all that kind of thing. Um, what, what, what's your thoughts about the kind of uh, streaming services future in video games and how that will um, affect uh, affect a company like yours? Yeah, I think I'm. I take the same stance as what essentially what Xbox uh, stance is on, which is is definitely a market that is interesting, but it is not. A thing that I think I'm I'm interested in uh, completely investing in. So so one of the philosophies that we like to follow um, is actually after um, 
the the Wells Fargo. So Wells Fargo. This is gonna sound weird. Wells Fargo, the bank, um, back uh, like when it was formed a、uh, hundred plus years ago, um, they uh, the founders had an idea, and that is we、uh, we have to. We have to stay with our values and our core competencies as a as a company, and technology should only be used to serve to amplify those values, not as part of the core values themselves. So, so to to best explain this, you know, Wells Fargo was one of the first banks in the world to use online banking. I think back in like 1993 or something like that,、uh, which was a huge thing and it did the company a lot of good. But they were not an online banking company. They were a Good bank to start, and then eventually they realize that the technology is there to help them be a better bank. Therefore, they they use the the online banking system.、Um, I see a lot of game developers look at new hype technologies. You know, at first it was the VR, and then AR,、uh, and then now like streaming is kind of the next thing. Or and then in between that, there was a, a, a cryptocurrencies, a, a blockchain technology. You know, like you see these things come and go. And and I think the way that we see it has always been how can we make value-driven, meaningful games, and how do these pieces of technology technology help us amplify that vision? If they're not really a good fit, we're not going to try to force it to make it work.、Uh, and if, if they actually help our our、uh, achievement a, a lot, then sure, we can go ahead and invest in it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. I I, I definitely think the the infrastructure sort of around us needs to sort of catch up. Before、um, I can certainly see the, the the benefit of the early adopters kind of going in if you've got a you know a, a great internet connection, but for at the minute, especially in the U.S. where you you kind of you're data capped,、um, it seems it, it seems like a bit of a far far stretch at the minute.、Uh, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, also just to quickly interject on on the fact that you talked about the infrastructure. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I tried a couple of、uh, streaming services at E3 this year with、uh, some par- partners that we've been chatting with. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> there's a reason why I'm not entirely sold. That, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic insight in, into your company.、Um, I was wondering, Z, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into the games industry in the first place. Yeah. So so this is a kind of a longer story. So I'll try to try to shorten it, but.、Um, Essentially, I mean, I've I've always been a gamer ever since I was a kid. Always enjoyed games.、Uh, you know, I always tinkered with making games. I think I programmed my first game when I was like ten years old in、uh, Quick Basic,、uh, and then kept on doing all sorts of different things like game design, music, art, and all that. But、uh, what happened is that when I was eighteen years old,、uh, my first year in college, I was diagnosed with a very severe illness that caused me to be hospitalized. Um, and this illness was so bad that、um, essentially for the next two years I wasn't able to do anything.、Um, I was、uh, stuck in the hospital, and all I had was essentially play video games. So I started playing all sorts of different games,、uh, you know, single-player games like Final Fantasy games that kind of motivated me to go out there and save the world.、Uh, multiplayer games、uh, like World of Warcraft, League of Legends, Minecraft, you know, all these、uh, to go online and make friends and and meet people,、uh, despite the fact that I was trapped in a in a room. So. Uh, eventually, over the span of two years,、uh, I, I recovered,、um, and I was able to go back in school. However, I looked back and and thought, like, you know, these games, especially like you know, League of Legends, you know, it's not it's not made to help a dying kid in the hospital.、Uh, but in the end,、uh, they did, and、uh, and and they essentially saved my life. 
Now, what if we start as developers? What if we start making games with the intention to help other people? You know, what kind of power can we unlock there? And that's when I really had the idea to to focus on making games. Um, from that point onwards, uh, it's it's just very easy to have a very strong passion for a goal uh, for why you want to do what you do, and, uh, and since then, it's just been always been serving as a north star. I mean, Serenity Forge, as the idea of this game company started essentially, you know, ten years ago, and our mission statement, you know, creating value-driven experiences that challenge the way you think. Uh, this this statement literally never changed for the past ten years because uh, we don't need to. That's always been our goal. So yeah, I mean, that's essentially the short version of uh, how I got started in games. That's, that's, that's an amazing personal story. And uh, um, so if you were to, if, if someone came up to you and said, oh, you know, Z, I've seen you're, you're a great success in video games. How, how do I get into video games? What, what advice would, would you give to someone wanting to get into the industry? Right. Well, first of all, I would disagree with me being a great success in games. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's uh, that's kind of a silly notion to think about the the stress that I have to think about every day. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, getting into games nowadays is actually a lot easier uh, than it has ever been. Um, honestly, my best recommendation would be to just start being self-sufficient. Uh, I think as a game developer, um, you have to be very competitive. This is one of the most competitive industries in the world. You know, as a game developer, you have to take such a traumatic, I would say traumatic, uh, pay cut just to be able to work on games. Uh, it's kind of like your, you know, your, uh, the Starbucks barista who is pursuing their music career on the side. Uh, like as a game developer, you're, you're essentially going to have to go through that. So the best way to do it is to learn hard skills from the get-go. Hard skills being art or programming. Uh, either become an extremely good artist or become a really good programmer. That's the easiest way to get you in. Um, if, if that's not the case, um, generally you are more of a, uh, a generalist, I would say. Uh, being in that position, you are probably better suited as like a more of a leader role or like a solo dev or works on a small team. Whereas if you specialize in something, go to school for a particular degree that works in games, you're probably better suited for a AAA environment. Um, and then lastly, you know, like if we're looking at really young kids, like middle school, high schoolers who are looking to get in games, Unity is free. Just go download download Unity. Um, go go to YouTube and start YouTubing. You know, random uh, videos on how do how do you make your first game. If you if you literally search how do I make my first game in Unity on YouTube, you'll probably get at least ten thousand uh, like videos that you can watch on how to do that, um, and they'll walk you step by step on how you can create your own game. Um, uh, and, and then if Unity is still a little bit too advanced, there are other tools like Game Maker, RPG Maker, Twine even, uh, uh, that, that you can kind of get into that logic of creating games. So yeah, I mean, that's, those are, that's kind of like a you know, very condensed version of what I would recommend. That's fantastic. Well, Z, I've taken up an, enough of your time today, and it's been, it's been fantastic to, to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing your experience about um, your games that are coming out and uh, your company and uh, your advice on the, video game, on the video games industry. So thank you very much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. So that was me there talking to Z, and thank you once again, Z, for taking the time out of your busy schedule, sitting down with me and talking about video games. Really, really appreciate it. Loads of really interesting projects and fantastic games coming out of Serenity Forge. 
We've got Harpas Fate coming soon. Once Upon a Coma is also coming soon. And uh, a Kingsbird is out there already. So, yeah, I thoroughly recommend going and checking out Serenity Forge and all their games. So if you're enjoying this week in video games podcast, then head on over to iTunes and leave us a nice review. It really helps get the word out about the podcast, so if you've got access to iTunes, then I'd really, really appreciate it if you could give us a positive review. And don't forget, This Week in Video Games has a YouTube channel that goes alongside with the podcast. The YouTube channel's got the entire archive of the podcast, as well as dedicated reviews, interviews, features, and new how-to videos as well. Search This Week in Video Games on YouTube and subscribe for all that latest content, and I'll put the uh, link to the YouTube channel down there in the show notes if you want to check it out. And if you want to see anything specific on YouTube, send me an email to podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Also, if you want to support This Week in Video Games, head on over to patreon.com forward slash thisweekinvideogames. And uh, in exchange for supporting the show, you'll get shout outs, Discord access, exclusive Patreon content polls, special design podcast scripts and stickers. So if you enjoy This Week in Video Games, then sign up to Patreon. It would be great to see you there. Next up, let's take a look at the news of the week. So first up in the news this week, Dota Underlords is now available on Steam and Mobiles. So Dota Underlords, Valve's own Dota Auto Chess, is now live and free to download on PC, iOS and Android devices. The game's currently in early access and will stay that way for a few months. Uh, but the game does have a number of features, including choose your own underlord, so you can pick an underlord from a wide range of characters. There's ranked matchmaking, so you can climb the ranks and prove your worth. There's battle pass as well, so that includes player progression upgrades and cosmetics. Now we've got seasons as well, so the world of Dota underlords will evolve with each season with heroes, items and alliances on rotation. There's private matches, so you can create private matches and invite spectators as well. And Dota Underlords is free to play. Um, so as well as all the features there, Valve plan to add offline play, daily challenges, rewards and other features really soon. Uh, so Dota Underlords is doing really well on Twitch. Uh, it's got 170,000 concurrent viewers at the minute and Auto Chess is widely regarded as the next big thing in gaming and the Twitch numbers appear to back that up. This is much more than Valve's last release, Artifact, which enjoyed only 60,000 concurrent viewers. Um, so yeah... Dota Underlords is doing really, really well. And if you're not sure what Auto Chess is, don't worry, just hop in for free. Give it a go right now on iOS, Android and PC. Next up in the news, Red Dead Redemption 2 soundtrack is coming in July. And perhaps one of the best soundtracks in video games is coming really soon. Red Dead Redemption 2 soundtrack is coming out on July the 12th, 2019. So the music of Red Dead Redemption 2 features 13 tracks from artists such as Willie Nelson, D'Angelo, Joss Homme and Rhiannon Giddens, Naz and more. The album's being produced by Daniel Lanoy, who's worked with musicians such as Bob Dylan and Brian Eno. And the Red Dead Redemption 2 soundtrack, as I mentioned, is coming on July the 12th, 2019. This follows on from Red Dead Online coming out of beta recently and turning up those content updates. Next up, we've got Harry Potter Wizards Unite. And uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite, the new AR game from the Pokemon Go creator Niantic, was released on Friday 21st of June 2019, so that was a couple of days ago. The game's been in beta for some time already in New Zealand and Australia. Now it's ready for release in two major markets. 
So initially, the game's been released in the UK and the US before being gradually rolled out to other regions over time. So this follows a similar pattern uh, to Pokemon Go that released back in 2016. So you can check out more about Harry Potter Wizards Unite on Niantic's website, and Niantic say, Harry Potter Wizards Unite combines the content and characters you know and love from both the original Harry Potter series and the Fantastic Beast films in a unique wizarding world experience. It's up to you to ready your wand, prepare your potions and brush up your spells and help prevent the calamity from exposing the secrets of the wizarding world. And the game is available now through mobile app stores. It's free, so uh, just go to iOS or Android and download Harry Potter Wizards Unite for free. Next up, Fallout 76 canvas bags have finally been delivered and things are finally looking up for Fallout 76 players. Human NPCs are coming. There's a new Battle Royale mode called Nuclear Winter and the long-promised Fallout 76 Power Armor Edition canvas bags have started to arrive. So when Fallout 76 came out, they released a version called the Fallout 76 Power Armor Edition that was $179.99. That was supposed to come with a canvas Westech bag, but players were shipped cheaper nylon ones. This added to a buggy, lackluster launch for Fallout 76 and the internet got very, very angry. Bethesda initially didn't respond too well to criticism by offering a meagre amount of in-game currency as an apology. They eventually said fans would be getting their canvas bags but would have to wait a little because they were being manufactured. However, fast forward seven months and the canvas bags have started to arrive. Redditors and Twitter users have posted their bags online uh, saying they started to arrive and some fans are saying they're really, really happy about it. So Fallout 76 continues to turn things around. Could this be 2019's redemption story? We've got a little way to go yet, but things are certainly looking up for Fallout 76. Next up in the news, you can't catch them all in Pokemon Sword and Shield. So Game Freak, the game studio behind the popular Pokemon series, said the upcoming Pokemon Sword and Shield will not support all Pokemon species. As well as not being able to get all Pokemon, we're not going to be able to transfer Pokemon outside the regional Pokedex. The sheer number of Pokemon in existence will exceed 1,000 with Pokemon Sword and Shield, and therefore making them all available is becoming increasingly harder. Game Freak producer Junuchi Masuda said to Famitsu, the total number of Pokemon has exceeded 1,000, including new Pokemon and the form change of existing Pokemon. As a result, it's become increasingly difficult to make Pokemon with a new personality play an active part and balance the compatibility. In addition to making a graphic and quality adapted to changes in the hardware and also in terms of battle. That's the reason for this decision and we've decided it's difficult to make all Pokemon appear in future works. So it would be tough to include over a thousand Pokemon character models on a less powerful system like Nintendo Switch. And uh, Masuda went on to say, This decision is personally sad. Of course, I wanted to be able to bring all Pokemon if I could. But it was also a decision I had to make one day. And in the end, I had no choice but to choose the quality over the quantity. Although we're not going to be able to catch them all in uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield, we will be able to upload and store our Pokemon in the central cloud system, Pokemon Home. Then maybe one day, we'll be able to have all of our Pokemon in place once again, because they're kind of stored in the central system. But for now, we're just going to have to play with the uh, Pokemon that are available. Next up in the news, Amazon Game Studios have laid off some staff. According to reports, Amazon has let go of dozens of members of staff 
uh, and they've got 60 days to find other jobs inside Amazon or receive a compensation package on their way out of the company. Originally reported by Kotaku, uh, Amazon said, These moves are a result of a regular business planning cycle where we align resources to a match evolving long-range priorities. We're working closely with all employees affected by these changes to assist them in finding new roles within Amazon. Amazon is deeply committed to games and it continues to invest heavily in Amazon Game Studios, Twitch, Twitch Prime, AWS, our retail businesses and other areas within Amazon. Amazon hasn't had a great time with Game Studios recently with the multiplayer Breakaway being cancelled in 2017 and a whole bunch of unannounced games that have been cancelled too. Next up, happier news as uh, Dr. Mario World release date has been announced. So Nintendo's latest mobile game has been given a launch date with Dr. Mario World coming to iOS and Android devices on July the 10th, 2019. So earlier this year, Nintendo said they'd be extending their range of mobile games and uh, Dr. Mario World has got 169 levels across five worlds and a range of characters to choose from, including Dr. Mario, Dr. Luigi, Dr. Toad, Dr. Yoshi and Dr. Peach. Uh, The objective of the game is to clear the different coloured viruses by matching the same coloured pills. And there's also new items including a Cooper shell which can clear whole lines in one go. Which kind of looks a little bit like Candy Crush if you're used to that style of game. Nintendo have released a nice explainer on YouTube and you can find a link to that on thisweekinvideogames.com. Search up Dr. Mario World and you'll find that explainer video there. As it's a mobile game, there's also monetization features such as items for sale, and there's also an interesting energy system where you can try stages a number of times before hitting a paywall, although you can try again after a 30-minute cooldown. Uh, so yeah, so Dr. Mario World is available from July the 10th, 2019, and you can find out more on the official website. Uh, go to thisweekinvideogames.com, search Dr. Mario World to find those links. Okay, next up in the news, Destiny 2 on Google Stadia. The players are going to be ring-fenced at launch. So Destiny 2 Google Stadia players are only going to be able to play with other Google Stadia players at launch. And Bungie have confirmed this during a recent This Week at Bungie in an update to fans. So Google recently announced that Stadia would include Destiny 2 at launch and fans had hoped that crossplay would be available with the PC community. However, Bungie has said that this year they're focusing on cross-save rather than cross-play. So Bungie said Stadia is its own ecosystem, just like current and existing platforms. Stadia players will only be able to play with other Stadia players. So this means, at the launch, Destiny 2 players on Google Stadia will only have other players in that ecosystem, much like current platforms. So Mark Noseworthy, Destiny's general manager, did say on Twitter, We've already mentioned that we'd love to bring cross-play to Destiny 2. There's no policy or technical barrier preventing us from including Google Stadia. We'd be looking to include every platform. This year, though, we're focused on delivering cross-save to all platforms. So you can find out more about Google Stadia's Founders Edition on their website. And Destiny 2 is coming to Google Stadia at launch, and that will be sometime in November 2019. So that's it for the news this week. Next up, let's take a look at the charts. Okay, so number 10 this week, we've got Blood and Truth, and that's down five places from number five. And number nine, we've got Grand Theft Auto V, that's down three places from number six. In at number eight this week, it's Anthem, which is up six places from number 14. Then at number seven, it's PlayStation VR World, which is up three places from number 10. 
In at number six, it's Battlefield 5, which is up five places from number 11. Then at number five, down one place from four, Red Dead Redemption 2. Up eight places from 12 to number four, we've got Forza Horizon 4. And at number three, we've got Marvel Spider-Man. Number two, we've still got Days Gone. And then number one is FIFA 19. It looks like the charts there have taken a little bump from E3, with Forza Horizon 4 coming back in the charts and uh, Battlefield 5 coming back in the top 10 as well. That's it for the charts this week. Let's take a look at what we've got coming up next week. Okay, so next week we've got a few games, and on June the 24th there's Heavy Rain coming out for PC. On the 25th there's Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, that's coming out on Nintendo Switch. There's Judgment coming out on PS4. Monster Jam Steel Titans, that's coming out on PC, PS4, and Xbox One. And we've got Mutant Year Zero, Road to Eden. That's coming out for PC, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. On the 26th, we've got Ace Combat 7 Skies Unknown. Uh, that's the ADF-01 Falcon DLC. And then on the 27th, we've got a few more games. We've got Battlefield 5, Chapter 4, Define the Odds. That's PC, PS4, and Xbox One. My Child Levensborn, that's coming out on PC. The Sinking City, that's coming out on PC, PS4 and Xbox One. And we've got the Tour de France 2019, that's coming out on PS4 and Xbox One. And Virtua Racing, that's coming out on the Switch, that's going to be a good one. And uh, we've also got Wonder Boy Monsterland, that's coming out on Switch, and that's the final one on the 27th. On the 28th, we've got F1 2019, that's coming out on PC, PS4 and Xbox One. And then finally, we've got Super Mario Maker 2 coming out on Nintendo Switch. And there's a few, yeah, there's a few games in there which look really good. Super Mario Maker 2, definitely one for me. Uh, Virtual Racing as well coming out on the Switch. Definitely look forward to that. And I've heard good things about Bloodstained Ritual of the Night as well. So yeah, jam-packed week next week. So that's it for this week's episode. If you want to get involved in the show, then do email us on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com. Or check out the latest on the website. Uh, send in your questions, your comments, and your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. Um, I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Patreon. So search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in the conversation. Thanks once again for hanging out with me and chatting about video games. I hope you have a good week, and I'm looking forward to talking to you next weekend. But for now, I'll see you soon.